from Relay FM. This is Download, recorded February 14th, 2019. This is episode 91. N is not for Netscape. Welcome back to Download, where we cover the most interesting technology stories of the week. I am Jason Snell, your host as always, and of course, always with me is the great Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hey, happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you too, buddy, and happy Valentine's Day to everybody out there. Um, we love you. That's nice. That's a nice way to start. That's yeah. a podcast that loves you back. That's the uh, Download Podcast credo <laughs> today, anyway, in this episode. Uh, maybe not. The um, We should get down to it. We've got the uh, most interesting stories of the week, as Stephen and I have selected, and uh, we will be joined later by Lisa Schmeiser to talk about two particularly interesting stories, but there's more news to also talk about up here. The What I've, I've uh, decided to call the big barrage O-headlines, um, Apple stories are out there floating around. There were two this week that I thought were interesting. BuzzFeed, John Pikowski at BuzzFeed broke the uh the big news that apple was going to do an event in march to roll out their uh, news service which i also want to talk about because there was a different story about uh from the wall street journal and others about how apple wanted a 50 percent cut of uh what everybody makes from the news service which is fascinating um but i also want to point out that bloomberg not to be beaten, although they were sort of, by BuzzFeed News, Bloomberg, including Mark Gurman, reported that something that that, uh, John Pikowski didn't, which is, yes, that event is about Apple's forthcoming video service that they've been building for a year and a half. And key point here, and the first time I've mentioned some of these people on a tech podcast before, or at least on this podcast before, uh, they've invited stars to appear, including Jennifer Aniston, who is in one of their shows, and uh, and J.J. Abrams, who I believe is producing one of their shows. So unsurprising that the stars may be coming out uh, at the Steve Jobs Theater, which is where this event is supposedly taking place in uh, in March. Uh, Stephen, our are you excited that I have a very slight chance of meeting Jennifer Aniston? I mean, that, that'd be cool uh, for you. Sure. I guess. Uh, I guess. Ex- exciting for the rest of us. No, it, it seems, I mean, like there has been so much smoke here for so long. And I want to give you and Mike Hurley credit for really like documenting this on upgrade. You'll have a segment each week called upstream where you talk about the media streaming and like sort of uh, on the whole, but you know, over time Apple's become, a bigger part of that conversation. And uh, I guess my only, my only real question is, and I don't know if anyone knows, but like, is it just the streaming service? Is there a hardware component to this too? Are they going to bring up Samsung and say, yes, and it's on the Samsung TV and we have this Mm. other thing today, you know, like what's the whole story beyond just their original content? Do they have back catalog content from other providers? It seems like there's a lot of unanswered questions still. You made a really good point. One of the things that John Pikowski says in his story is that, no, they're not going to introduce the iPad mini or AirPods 2 during this event, which I think makes complete sense. This is about a bunch of services that they're rolling out. And uh, yeah, you're exactly right, which is, is there another shoe to drop or are there further announcements to make about Apple tech being on other platforms? They made a bunch at CES. This would be a logical place for those other partner announcements to bring somebody out on stage from uh, Amazon or Roku or something like that and say, yep, Apple's new service is going to be on all of our devices and isn't it great or whatever. Um, Because we live in that world now where Apple is making deals with the makers of TVs at least and maybe they'll do it with third-party boxes too to get this thing everywhere because that's got to be part of their message right is you can you know you can watch this on your iPhone and iPad and your Mac but you can also watch this on your TV via all these different means right I mean you, you look at these other I mean look at something like Amazon Prime Video or Netflix it's I mean like a microwave can run Netflix at this point right <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just everywhere yeah. and Apple is starting behind there but uh, it would be interesting to see how they how they pitch all of that. Um, I think something else I'm going to be looking t- to uh, to see details on is what is the relationship between this and Apple Music? If I already pay for Apple Music, can I get a bundle and all this is cheaper? Is it a different brand than Apple Music right now? They're like video experiments are part of that. That's still, I think, unknown. And it'll be interesting to see how they sort of 
lump all this together because Apple will be in a unique boat where they're going to have a video streaming service and a music streaming service, right? Netflix and Hulu don't have that. Spotify doesn't have that. Apple's going to be the only one competing sort of in both arenas. Yeah, this is the mystery question. And I think the news service is a complexifier, <laughs> to use a word that Jeff Bezos likes, because you're juggling so many balls at that point that it starts to make the idea of a bundle almost a requirement, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And I believe one of these reports, maybe it was the BuzzFeed News report, said there will be some sort of bundle as well, and you know we've speculated a lot about what that might be. Um, the simple bundle is music and video going together, but if they're adding in news, and we know that Apple is really interested in all sorts of other services offerings, there's also this speculation that is, I, I think there is purely speculation at this point that Apple might consider some kind of overall Apple services bundle where you're all in on Apple services and you get everything. Um, I also wonder about the news service when when and we'll talk about that more in a second but when they talk about people being tempted uh, publishers being tempted by the idea that the news service is going to be enormous have lots of subscribers and therefore there's going to be a lot of money pouring into this news service that they can share in i think unsaid in that is perhaps apple suggesting that the news service is going to be big like on its own i have a hard time believing that news service a standalone apple news subscription service would be successful uh on the level that i think they're hoping it will be that the publishers are hoping it will be but if it's bundled if it's just part of a big apple bundle um and you can also get it separately maybe but it's part of a big bundle then i can see it right then they're like well of course we're just going to ride along with apple music and apple video and we're going to get our cut and then it's great for us and uh so i I think that's the thing everybody is going to need to be uh, looking for is is how does apple market this and and are there going to be bundles there because i don't think everybody wants to sign up for like eight different apple service subscriptions yeah it's I mean, count me there, right? Like I already pay for iCloud's family storage and then Apple Music and then we have like the app stores. I understand that's different, but it would be nice for them to consolidate some of that stuff. I feel like Apple dings my debit card for like $4 here, $8 here, $12 there, like way too often. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I get so many different emails. And I know even if the number was the same, I think there's something comforting, uh, something nice and and simple and clean about having your one monthly bill from Apple instead of your eight different little monthly bills that you have to manage separately. And do I want to turn this on? And do I want to turn this off? uh, And just get everybody in there and that also lets apple kind of say well as like with amazon prime like well as a part of this apple thing that you get not only do you get our video and our music but you get this you know apple news is now this great service where all of these you know things are unlocked for you and it's like an add-on i'm sure publishers don't want to see themselves as an add-on but i think realistically that may be where they are mm-hmm. Exciting yeah so though. we should yeah it is it's this is a this is a new era what does an apple event look like that isn't really about hardware um, at all is kind of an interesting question. Um, so, Stephen, you and I both uh, have uh, been in the journalism business. Um, what do you think about the reports about the Apple news service and Apple playing hardball with publishers and apparently saying that they want a, a 50-50 revenue split of all money going into the service? Um, because I I had seen a lot of skepticism about this when everybody assumed it would be Apple's usual 70-30 or maybe even you know the 15% reduction that they do after a year. Uh, but not a fifty-fifty revenue split. So, you know, what, what what is your reaction to the to that idea and that story that came out this week? And the initial reaction to it, which was basically Apple is smoking something if they think they're going to get this. Yeah, uh, I understand that, and I tend to agree with that. That does seem high to me. But then you have to balance that with a, a Recode article by Peter Kafka, who is like the person when it comes to this sort of reporting. Totally saying that. Apple actually has already signed up quite a few people and the way that he expects it to work, it's 50% of the revenue through the subscriptions, any ad revenue that the publisher gets a hundred percent, which is still going to be greater than I would think greater than the uh, subscription revenue anyways. So maybe that's enough to balance it out. But I think the sort of the crux of his article is there are a lot of publishers who would rather take a small percentage of a larger pie than nothing at all. And 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, when this when these rumors first came out about this new service, my initial reaction was that there were there were publishers who would view it as incremental revenue, like this is not their core business, but that they that they could use some incremental dollars and that Apple could provide it. Um, also, it sounds like maybe it's the magazine publishers that are more, most kind of into the idea of the fifty fifty split. Uh, maybe they have uh, struggled to build their own subscription offerings digitally. Um, maybe they just believe Apple that the volume of this is going to be so great that the money's going to, going to roll in. Um, I think that the initial thought that we all had that maybe successful premium subscription businesses like newspapers, like the New York times and the Washington post and the wall street journal are going to be not interested in this at all because they've already built a pretty successful premium subscription offering. And so to go a la carte, or kind of like a la carte, count up your page views and get a kind of tidy cut seems, I don't know, seems a lot less likely to me. Um, and that seems to be what this story is about is basically that they, they have an initial wave of people who are like, sure, why not? We'll give it a try. And now they, they're reaching to some other publishers who are like, we can't, we can't do this. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense for us. Um, ben Thompson over at Stratechery pointed out that uh, the business model, your business model changes once you're in this Apple News system too, because the whole idea of having a subscription site is you are serving the people who are paying you and you want to provide value so that they keep paying you. Uh, but guess what? Uh, this subscription model that Apple's talking about here, you're back to fighting for page views ultimately because that's how you get paid and so that changes the nature of of what you publish because you are you're you know even in a premium environment you're just chasing page views again which is kind of corrosive oh it definitely is and this this whole conversation can't take place in a vacuum right we've seen these media companies be lured into things by tech companies uh look at facebook video being the prime example and these media companies lost badly in those deals, right? They've had to lay off a lot of people. They do this giant pivot and then it doesn't work out. So I can understand a lot of these companies being hesitant to get into this. But if you're someone like the New York Times or the Washington Post, you're also kind of in a position where maybe you don't need this, right? Where they're doing fine on their own. People are fine purchasing a subscription directly. And I just don't know yeah. if the upside of having it all in one place is enough to like break that uh, immediate like one-on-one interaction between the consumer and the publisher. I think time will tell how much people really want that. But I, I just, I, I, get the, I guess at the end of the day, I just don't know what sort of media outlet is like begging for this because a lot of them have been hurt and then a lot of them just don't need it. Yeah. And, and it's a, uh, I am not a believer that this revenue stream is going to be so great that it's going to be able for these organizations to support themselves using it. Um, it is also possible that some of these organizations are going to do what, um, what uh, like the New York Times and several other organizations allow a let's say larger, they're not counting, uh, you know, three or 10 or whatever it is, story views a month in Apple News. What they're doing is they've got a subset of their stories that they publish for free in Apple News. And it's possible that what will happen is the Times and the, and the Journal and other places like that, the Post, will convert that to, we will give that subset now to people who pay for the Apple News subscription. And if you don't pay, you don't get anything uh, from us on Apple News. Or you get an even smaller subset. I don't know. I, I, if I was Apple, I wouldn't love that idea, but it would be better than nothing from these leading groups. Um, I don't know. The, the economics of this, knowing what I know about the economics of the publishing industry, I don't see how this is makes sense in the long run uh, for publishers to, to make a deal like this with Apple, especially if the terms are a 50-50 split. And, you know, but I, I suggested on a podcast, not... Uh, not uh, too long ago that um, maybe Apple should just, you know, set up a foundation and buy a bunch of local newspapers and mm. <laughs> and keep them afloat and use them as a news source in Apple News and ha- and call it a day. And instead, Apple, it sounds like Apple wants to just uh, take half of all newspaper revenue and hope that and magazine revenue and hope they can survive on the rest. I don't see it. I just I, I don't see it. This seems like a uh, uh, I would uh, I I would be surprised if this service isn't troubled. If it doesn't end up being kind of disappointing at launch, and then they're going to have mm-hmm. to figure it out and tweak it, and um, and maybe it will be something that ultimately is successful, but uh, I would have to predict that out of the gate it'll be a little rough. 
I, I think I agree, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it'll be fascinating to see who the partners are and, and who aren't and, and uh, you know, put those magazine and newspaper executives up there on stage with the Hollywood stars. Uh, but very obviously that is going to be the focus of this event is the, the video stuff. The, the new stuff will be there too. Also, also available newspapers. Another big thing that's happening next week, I, I predict, Stephen, that next week we're going to have a lot of conversations about Samsung. It's that time again. It, it is time for Samsung to do one of those kind of weird pr- uh, product events that they do. It'll be February 20th, so it's uh, less than a week away. And this is going to be the next generation Galaxy S10. And of course, I say that like it's a phone, but it hasn't been a phone for a while. And it's really not a phone now. It is a product line. The rumors are that there are going to be, I think, four new models of Galaxy S10, including a uh, a low-end model called the E. Uh, so lots of letters there. S10e that is a, a lower cost thing, a standard S10, an S10 Plus, which is a larger model and the S10X so you can have 10 you can pronounce it both ways S10X and of course the X is the high end ultra high performance line very much like Apple's iPhone 10 so four different Galaxy S10s on the way that's a lot of S10s including the X I I feel like they're trolling literally they're trolling Apple with that name it's hilarious <laughs> it's a lot of phones and you know, but the, Apple's done it, Samsung's done it, other manufacturers have done it, where for a long time, one model was enough to kind of make everyone happy. And now people want bigger phones, or they want yeah. smaller phones. Uh, we haven't yet spoken about the foldable thing that may well, take an, make an appearance here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is it's good to have diversity in your product line, for sure, because people don't want the, the, the one size doesn't fit all. And you do want a, a bigger screen or uh, a cheaper model. Uh, and and then some people want the best possible phone, which you know Apple has tried to do with its 10 line, and and the Samsung wants to do with this X variant, like the best Galaxy S10 you can get. But you mention it; the stories are out there. Samsung is teasing everybody that this is going to be the event where they unveil, show, tease further. Uh, who knows what the details are? But they're 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 saying that that foldable phone is going to be a part of this event too, and that would be, I think, a big a big deal in the milestone, even if it's not, even if it's not real yet, even if it's mm-hmm. still just kind of a preview, um, because everybody is curious about what a major phone maker would do with a foldable display. Yeah, and Samsung's going to be the one. I mean, these phones exist now from other manufacturers. If anyone mm-hmm. can make it good or make it mainstream, even it will be Samsung and. I would imagine that other manufacturers would then turn to Samsung for, you know, Samsung is a device maker and then they make a bunch of components, right? Like the iPhone uses Samsung displays. And uh, yeah. so if this is a thing that works and people like it, I think Samsung technology, like that side of their company will stand to benefit from it. I, I just, I want to be sold on the, the reason for its existence. And I'm not sure I've heard a good, <laughs> I'm not sure I've heard a good story about that yet. Honestly, you know, like I feel like the phones are plenty big for what I want, and maybe there is a desire for out there for someone to have an iPad Mini type small tablet that folds into a phone. But I want to see how that works. I want I want to hear their story, and I want to see the software isn't utterly broken on it before I'm convinced. Yeah, the uh, the ooh ah look at folds is great for a demo, but you're right. Beyond that, it's sort of like, well, what do I do with this? Why do I want it? This is going to cost a fortune. Is it going to work right? Why would I use this? And and that is a good question. To uh, something to watch in that event is, does Samsung really try to make a case for why it's useful? Uh, and and if so, what is that? Or is it really more like this is so cool you can unfold it and then use it and then fold it again, which is not quite the same as saying why you'd actually want this as a product. I I think uh, intriguing to me is what you mentioned. Samsung makes this display. So unlike the other phone makers who've been able to buy a foldable display and integrate it in their phones, Samsung has been able to develop this thing, presumably at least to a certain degree. Um, As they develop the display, they've been able to think about how they would integrate it into one of their phones. And as we've seen with with Apple and other companies who who make uh, some of the components of their devices, it gives them... uh, 
a leg up because they've been able to, you know, they're building it. Maybe they'll sell it to someone else, but they're building it for themselves. And so that might mean this is a much more interesting um, and a better thought out product than some of the other foldable phones that we've seen that seem silly. <laughs> or it may be silly. It's possible. Who knows? Who knows? Well, we'll see. We know in the future in next week's episode. So if you're listening to this in the past, it's a present for you. It's our future. I don't know what's going on. Uh, listen to the next episode and we'll talk all about Tales it. Tales of smartphone future past. That's exactly right. It's, uh, it is a comic book waiting to happen. Okay, we are going to take a break and then come back with uh, Lisa Schmeiser and also our story you might have missed. But first, let me tell you about our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Pingdom. Pingdom is a brilliant company. They keep your sites online. They keep the sites you love online. They monitor your site so you don't have to. They give you real-time feedback so you know exactly what's going on at all times. You know, the internet is great. But did you know you did you know what's not great on the internet? The internet is made of computers and computers will betray you. I'm just saying it, don't tell them. The computers are bad. They will betray you. They break, they crash. They wait for humans to not be looking at them and then they destroy you and uh and are sad. So, how do you fight the, the tyranny of the the evil computers? Pingdom, because Pingdom is looking. Even if you're not looking, Pingdom is looking. They're detecting 13 million outages a day. They've got test servers in different places. So you're, if you say to yourself, what if one of the Pingdom computers betrays them? The answer is Pingdom's on it because they've got redundancy. They've got servers in different places around the world. They can find 400,000 outages every day. So it doesn't matter if you're just a little startup or a giant Fortune 500 company. Everybody needs alerts about critical issues on their websites. Pingdom lets you customize who gets alerted and how they get alerted based on the severity, based on the specifics of the outage. They will track and analyze your website's load time so you can find out if your server isn't down, but it's suddenly slow. That's not good either. Even though it's responding, it's responding slowly. If you have a site of any size, you need to try Pingdom. Pingdom has a no-fuss approach to getting started. They need the URL of your website. That's it. That's all they need to get started. They take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now. You'll get a 14-day free trial, no credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code DOWNLOAD at checkout. You will get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting Download and all of Relay FM. Now here's a story you might have missed. It's something that has maybe flown under the radar. You may have uh, not known that it was going on, but we think you should know about it. And it, uh, Are you a drone owner? Do you have a drone? Are you thinking of getting a drone? Steven, do you have a drone? Are you droning? Uh, I have like three quarters of a drone. Something bad happened to it. I don't. Oh, to, oh dear! I, I thought you. I, I, I was going to say like you, you can't like tape a, a, a wing to a, a a basketball and throw it in the air and call it a drone. <laughs> that is not a drone. It started life as a whole ball. drone, and then mm. did it, it meet a tree? A, it got in a fight with a tree. The <sighs> Trees are the arch enemy of the drones. Did you not know that? I know. Um, well, so it turns out the FAA wants everybody who's a drone owner to register and get a little code, a little registration ID for your drone. So if your drone flies off into the wild blue yonder and they find it, um, they will know who it belongs to. But they allowed those IDs to be put on the inside, like in a battery compartment or something. And this has led to some issues where... Um, as, as people know, there are occasionally airport shutdowns and things like that where there's drone activity and law enforcement gets involved and they're like, what are we going to do to stop this drone uh, and who's responsible for this drone? And uh, they got concerned that if you have to take the drone apart in order to find out who it belongs to, you could potentially booby trap a drone and cause harm. And so they, uh, if you have a drone... The drone, your drone ID responsibilities have changed. You now must put as of January, no, as of February 23rd. So very soon, you got to put your drone ID on the outside of your drone. You can't hide it on the inside. You need to have it visible so that if you, if your drone wanders into respect, uh, you know, restricted airspace, uh, they can like use a stick to flip it over and see the number on it or whatever. And, and then you're going to get a call, but uh, that's the new, new law for drone owners. Um, Steven, uh, you're safe because your drone is dead. Yeah. It, it, be fixed? it doesn't, it doesn't, or is fly. it just uh, not fixable? You can't get a new propeller or something, or is it just a big chunk? No, was taken it, it out took of it a, it took quite the hit. The basketball I was not, deflated. I need, I feel like I need to clear this up. I was not flying it at the time. Someone else, was. Oh. I won't implicate that person, but it was it a murdered. family member. That's too specific. Or was it an ex friend? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Uh, it is time for us to tell uh, to talk about a couple of other really good stories. Um, Amazon buying Eero and uh, some layoffs in the in the tech industry and other uh, kind of workplace unrest. And doing that will be our good friend Lisa Schmeiser returning to the show now. Lisa, welcome back to Download. Hi there. Happy Thursday. Happy Happy Thursday. Happy Download Day. Uh, lots of stuff going on. You know, I see things about Amazon and I think of you and I thought uh, we would we would talk to you a little bit about uh, Amazon. We've got some other stuff to talk about too. Big, big, big thinking topics that I want to talk to you about. Amazon bought Eero, uh, which I believe has been a sponsor on, if not this podcast, many podcasts that I do. And uh, and I use their products and they're great. Um, and I, I think the purchase of Eero by Amazon, Eero makes Wi-Fi hardware uh, and they've got you know, it's it's a mesh networking Wi-Fi hardware. Uh, for those who don't listen to podcast sponsors, who, what are you doing? Come on, listen to the sponsors. Um, this is, I think, more interesting from the perspective of how people reacted to it and what it means for the overall part of the industry because this is the latest example of a company who has products that people like and it gets bought by one of the you know handful of tech giants and then all the questions start about are they going to change their privacy policy and mine it for data are they going to are they going to ruin the product by sucking it in inside are they going to leave it alone i feel like we had this conversation like nest is a good example when google bought nest and it was like well what does this mean and and a lot of tech industry uh, observers and journalists are saying it's like i like the product it's, this is a great validation but at the same time this is more uh, yet another example of kind of consolidation of the VC funded companies seeking exits from the only companies that can afford them, which are the four or five enormous tech the companies Fong. that are out there. Yeah, yeah the, exactly. They're calling it so, Fong now, like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, um, Netflix, and Google. Yeah, um, that's right. It's, ne- uh, it's Netflix. Not, not, I'm, not, I'm not willing to say that. Stephen, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't stand for Net- Netscape, it stands for Netflix. Just you know, for you like know. a weird moment, I, I almost said Netscape and then was like, no, this is not 1999. This <laughs> <laughs> a parallel, a parallel universe. So, so yeah. I mean, Lisa, w- when you heard this news, is, is it that kind of mixture of like, oh boy, here's just another big tech company swallowing up technology to get bigger? Uh, it fits with the rest of Amazon's ploy. And uh, if you want to point fingers, and this sounds terrible because it's not, look at Apple where they were like, we own the stack, we own everything, we we control the hardware, we control the software, we control the operating system. It's a seamlessly integrated experience a seamlessly integrated user experience. I am sure that you could probably come up with the more accurate terminology that used to come out at keynotes with this. But for years, that was a huge differentiator for Apple where they were like, you can be guaranteed a good user experience. Or when they worked with software vendors, they were like, you have to understand, this is how we operate. We have our fingerprints over every aspect of the computing experience from, from you know the hardware design to the hardware manufacturer to the operating system. All Amazon has done is take this approach and then use it to separate people from their money, where huh. where they really want to um, they they want to kind of wrap you in the cocoon of the Amazon experience, where it's going to be we want to make sure that in every room of your house, the minute you're like, mm, I wonder what this is on Amazon, Alexa picks it up and goes, Oh, uh, did you need a case of paper towels as well as this book you were talking about? And so building hardware that makes that experience seamless and possible is part of it. And it's often cheaper to buy something someone has already made than try and pour a lot of money to doing it yourself. Um, but yeah, Amazon is basically all in on the experience where they, they want to blanket your house with a hardware net and a wireless experience to make sure that they can capture your data ambiently or otherwise. Um, and have you just say Alexa in any room and have it respond. And uh, they want to make sure that you're using Amazon services while you do it and that you're streaming Amazon streaming devices. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it'll be it'll be basically the company store all the way down. Yeah, I definitely heard from people who their reaction to the Aero news was like, uh, 
you know, this is this is pushes this product that was kind of not in an ecosystem into one of these mm-hmm. big ecosystems. And yeah. some people don't care. And some people are in that ecosystem. And other people have avoided that ecosystem. And I, again, to draw the parallel with Nest, there were a lot of people when Nest was bought by Google are like, oh, I try to avoid Google. And now I can't. And and Or when Facebook bought Instagram, right? That it, mm-hmm. it, it turned out in the long run that that was a way to capture people who would not be on Facebook otherwise. Yeah, uh, and there was a good Bloomberg piece that came out uh, on the 12th. Uh, The headline was, uh, Google, Amazon wants smart devices to mine even more of your data. And their argument is, the more of your data we have, the more effectively we can serve you and give you what you want. So, in effect, you give us all this data now, and maybe we don't have to collect more later. And they're putting pressure on smart home gadget makers like Logitech or Hunter Fan Company to build devices with them or for them that send out a continuous stream of information with everything from, are you turning the fan on and off at specific times of the day? What's your usage pattern? Is your smart door locked or unlocked? Is there a specific pattern for that too? Um, It's... And and yeah, it it's it's terrible when a company you like gets absorbed by one of these giants where if they're not clear to you, they're clear to in if they're not clear to the customer, they're clear to investors that their primary product is data and the repackaging and and reselling thereof to more again, more effectively separate people from their money. Yeah, I mean, Arrow has said, and Google yeah. says, or not Google, Amazon. See, I just get them all mixed up. Uh, mm-hmm. Netscape said uh, yeah. the, the, uh, that that they're not going to change their privacy policy. Although, uh, although Amazon said at this time, which is uh, pretty funny. Um, I would. It, it's hard not to think that in the long run. You know, maybe there will be a default uh, aggregated data setting that you can turn off. And I do see the argument, and Google has made this argument with its Wi-Fi too, that when you're a tech company and you're building and selling all of these other connected gadgets, that one of the important things is to make infrastructure in people's homes easy because you want that Wi-Fi to be pervasive. You want your gadgets to be able to spread everywhere else, even if the Wi-Fi um, isn't monitoring you. But it's so easy if all your traffic is going over that device to be able to use it as a data point and that's the that's part of the fear along with the, the fear that your that the product that you like is just going to get ruined or discontinued because it, what you like about it doesn't fit with the goals of this greater you know Goliath in the tech industry. Well, we've seen that happen with software products and software companies too. I mean, Microsoft sure. bought. I mean, Microsoft bought Trello, and there was a lot of weeping and wailing and gnashing and and, and rending of garments among Trello users. Um, and they also bought. I want to say it was. Um, a calendar app called Sunrise. Um, yes. I could be wrong. Yeah. yeah, and and people again, they 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 sunsetted that product, and people <laughs> and pe- <laughs> and people were genuinely upset because they were like, "This is a really great user experience." I had a lot of my life tied up in this, and now I don't. Um, and this points to a bigger issue, which is that, like you said, with the consolidation, these companies getting bigger, it's getting harder to opt out, and. Um, you know, the minute one of these companies makes a deal with a dorm, if it, it's probably already happened and it slipped off my radar or I forgot about it, but I'm just waiting for the first announcement that Amazon's got smart dorms at like University of Washington or something where there's Alexa in every room and it's tied to your student account and you can say, Alexa, what what was my grade on that test? Like, what you've then done is you've pulled people into an ecosystem right in an inflection point in their lives as consumers. Like, that's going to happen too and it's going to get normalized. And, you know, you just talked about privacy policies. And my first thought was, they'll say right now, oh, the privacy policy doesn't change. And I bet you within 12 to 18 months, the privacy policy will change because all they'll do is wait out the angry users and then be like, <laughs> and then they'll be like, oh, you know, we've fully integrated the product. It's no longer really Eero. It's Amazon Mesh. And as such, here's our thing. And what will people do then? Because they, they've already, they didn't move off of the mesh. They didn't move off of the ecosystem and they have no alternative. Steven, you've got Amazon devices in your life. Uh, what what I do. What did you feel when this happened? Yeah, I mean, I've got an Eero here, like literally under my desk. Uh, <laughs> and this is where I say they do sponsor a bunch of Relay FM shows. I own Relay FM. I did not pay for the Eero under my desk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all that said, you know, I want to take them at the word the privacy policy isn't going to change for now, but it's something that any consumer should keep an eye on, right? That if you open their app and there's a there's a change, you need to look through that. You need to go to like a trusted source uh, online and see someone smarter than us who can read this language uh, can explain it and see what they're actually doing. You know, 
for for me it 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 is balanced with you know if so if Amazon were to change things where they could see all the data going across my my wireless network you know what would they see and anything with uh SSL would be basically off limits now that's not to say they couldn't do things to kind of figure out like IP lookups and that sort of stuff but uh it's i don't think it's quite as as dire as some people have made it out to be that they're going to be you know reading your email and seeing what friends you're looking at on Facebook but it it just is a good reminder for me that in any of these services right, if you have an Eero or a Netgear or whatever all these companies are owned by somebody and knowing what they're doing and keeping up with changes they make over time i think is the the lesson for me i'm not unplugging my Eeros. i really like the service i really like the hardware they're not paying me to say this i genuinely do uh but if that day comes when they change their service you better believe that i'm going to pay attention to what they're doing yeah i think another thing this points out um and this kind of dovetails into some of the bigger tech stories from 2018 is we have U.S. consumers and U.S. citizens, I should emphasize rather than consumers, but U.S. citizens have so few data protection rights, especially relative to uh, Europe and Australia. Um, and as these companies consolidate, and it does get to the point where they, they have all sorts of ambient and ubiquitous data there may well end up being some sort of regulatory pressure where you do get more transparency in what are you collecting about me? How are you collecting it? What are the means? Simply because um, if these companies are multinational, they're already, already going to have to have safeguards and technology in place to honor other privacy protections. So it's not going to be a logistical challenge. It's just going to be a you, company, can you give me a good reason why people should not know what you're collecting about them, how securely it's stored, how they're using it, and whether or not they have a right to edit or delete that data? Yeah, I was wondering about, uh, like, the business model right now is, it seems to be, and I've seen this in different apps and different pieces of hardware, that a lot of times what they'll do is they'll monitor you by default, and there's a setting to turn it off. And mm -hmm. that's clever because it... It, it says, "Oh no, you can turn that off, right? You can, you can, you can do it. It lets them have some good PR." But, but saying, when you turn it yeah. off, we, we we neuter some of the functions that you got yeah, this thing maybe, for in the first place. Maybe, but they also just know the fact that most people will not turn it off. Most people will not even know that that setting exists. They won't care, and they'll just leave it on. And that is a business model that you know. I I definitely use apps where I know their business model is to look at my data, but the, I also know there's a setting to turn it off. And I'm sure that they are confident that it's a, such a small percentage of people who do that that they don't care. It doesn't hurt their business model. I do wonder. Um, one of the stories last year was about how Apple was officially not going to develop any more wireless hardware of its own, um, and that the market, the argument was the market was already being served by companies like uh, like Eero and Netgear, who were building mesh networking that was easy to set up that covered your whole home. It does. If I were one of those people at Apple who was involved in the strategy about this stuff, this deal would give me pause because if you're a company that has hung a shingle out saying we care about privacy and data security, but we're not going to do any networking hardware in people's homes. Um, I, I mean, you still have the issue of like your cable company's cable modem or, all, or something like that. But I would be troubled by this and saying, well, what happens if that it doesn't matter that we're offering, uh, you know, privacy to our customers if every method they use to reach the internet from that point is being monitored? Um, and yeah. I don't know if there's an answer there, but but it did it did strike me as like you know it was a better decision by Apple when Eero was independent. Um, although to be fair, you said it, Lisa. You don't know who, who owns these companies, and you could make the argument that a smaller company might be more reliant on selling out its users because they don't have the backing of the of a tech giant. Whereas Amazon might be like, "We don't need this product to snoop on people. We've got enough data elsewhere. We just want this to get people online." <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I think there's a there's another uh, line of argument here about like security. So we talked about privacy, but talking about security, where uh, a small company. You know, the pros are maybe they're less of a target for people trying to do, you know, trying to get into their systems and, and do bad things. But a larger company is going to be better equipped from a, a security perspective with more engineers, more experience, more robust systems, but they're going to be a bigger target. And, you know, I, I don't believe Eros had any sort of security issues, but other router companies have in the past with, you know, things like the uh, the Heartbleed deal and all that sort of like nightmare we had several years ago. And 
that's something too to consider when you're looking at a product that gets purchased. Like, just put them in a better place as far as security. Just to put them in a in a worse place. What could change there as well? Yeah, I don't know as much about Amazon's internal culture as I do about some other companies.、Um, but you know, to to raise your point about security, yeah, a lot of bigger companies do have those. Security teams, where their their specific jobs are to be strike teams, they respond, they fend off attacks,、um, you know, they stress test, they anticipate. But there may also be something where, <clears throat> if you've got a lot of turnover, somebody who may have been aware of a vulnerability leaves the company, and then next thing you know, there is a breach, and nobody knows what to do about it, precisely because the people who could have told you, oh, well, we We did X, and therefore there was Y vulnerability, and we didn't think it was a problem. Like those people are gone. <laughs> you have to, and you have to reverse engineer what happened and and go from there.、Um, I think that's what I'd be concerned about. Is with a small with a smaller company,、um, there tends to be more institutional memory because you don't have a, as as high a turnover, and there are, there tend to be more direct lines of communication, fewer layers, and and, and less territoriality because you're just focused on your one or two things. It's a fairly small, fast organization. The bigger you get, and the more interdependent. Um, the more interdependencies there are between different business units, and the more turnover there is, or the more people who get added because of scope and scale, the more diffuse the information gets. And that's actually the biggest security threat you're going to have is when people don't know how their product works or what the vulnerabilities are, and、um, they're also dealing with thinking about their product in context of where it fits in the business organization and not as users. Oh, I feel like we're going to need a really good fuzzy puppy update at the end of this episode. <laughs> yeah,、um, and and that's also a segue to another topic, which is fascinating that、uh, hit in the news this week, and it has some wider ranging issues, which is why I wanted to bring it up. So, of course,、uh, if you didn't hear, Activision Blizzard laid off a whole bunch of people. It's a very large layoff in their、uh, in, in in a bunch of different parts of their business, but especially their esports and some support and IT people.、Um, but I, what struck me about it is everybody talks about how the gaming industry is you know the video games. It's a huge entertainment、uh, industry. It makes huge amounts of money. It's a very successful one of our very successful industries. I will also throw in.、Um, The、uh, film industry to this, and so many movies that are successful are visual effects spectaculars, and yet you, what you hear about is in both of those, both games and visual effects,、um, there are lots of layoffs, very little job security. There is a、um, uh, a working culture in both, but especially in video games, there's a lot of talk about the corrosive working culture, people working very long hours. Um, and not being able to basically breaking themselves because of the long hours that they work,、um, and yet not having a whole lot of job security or being compensated particularly well in an industry that is,、uh, by all accounts, incredibly successful. And it's this very weird dichotomy where you have incredibly successful industries that yet treat some segment, at least, of their workers incredibly poorly. I will also throw in on the publishing side some stories that happened this week.、Um, BuzzFeed news employees are unionizing. This comes after BuzzFeed laid off a bunch of people and said just just decided they wouldn't pay out their vacation time. Um, that they took, they 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 banked time off in order to keep working at BuzzFeed and work hard at BuzzFeed, and then BuzzFeed wasn't going to pay them,、um, except in California where you can't do that because it's not legal.、Um, and、uh, after a big pushback from the employees at BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed finally said they would pay those people.、Um, but now on the heels of this, and this was already happening beforehand, but it's a good、uh, connection here. They are going to unionize BuzzFeed's、uh, news employees, and、uh, a place that has a union, the Los Angeles Times, it was. Reported this week has decided that they want to demand of all of their employees all essentially all rights to anything plausibly that they cover book rights,、uh, rights to their appearance and being able to fictionalize themselves in movies that they might pitch、uh, or TV shows that they might pitch or books that they might generate,、uh, and that that、um, a, a thing that journalists often do, which is、uh, eventually in addition to what they're covering for a newspaper, also write a book. The LA Times is basically like you can't do that. Um, or, or if you do that, it's going to be because we take a cut and we make your book deal for you, and that is、uh, an outrageous change to what has been journalism culture for a long time. This is all my way of saying, Lisa,、um, mm-hmm. it, it, we, we, <laughs> we, 
we live in a fascinating time when you have these um, these industries that, uh, and we have the giants uh, that we mentioned earlier, not including Netscape. And yet, uh, it seems like actually a very bad time to be a worker, a worker? at some yeah. of these places, <laughs> including some of these incredibly successful industries. Yeah, the I think so. Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't one of the prompts for the Activision layoffs that they're making slightly fewer billion dollars than than they were projected to make for their investors? Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, they they actually boasted about how they had a record year and then they laid off a bunch of people. So it's not <laughs> that it's not that they're running in the red and their operational costs are are like the run rate is crazy. It's simply that their investors are like, you didn't make as many billion dollars. So that is, I, I think that's the thing that kind of boggled my mind when I started reading about those layoffs is it wasn't that the company was in trouble. It's simply that rich institutional investors were like, we just didn't get rich enough. And as a result, all of these people who work crazy hours, and um, and this might be a separate topic, like the question is, why does the gaming industry operate the way that it does? Like, why mm. are these, like, why have they decided that this this working model is the one that is the most successful for the product they put out? Like, I don't know enough about how games are developed to answer that question, but it seems incredibly inefficient in terms of like human capital and 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 effort required to get a product out the door. <laughs> it but, does feel like yeah, maybe it yeah. is just a uh, one. It's a kind of badly run business because it's being run by people who um, maybe are bad business people because they came up uh, uh, really being excited about games but don't really know how to run a company. Um, and then there are also the people who, as you say, are are not really concerned with the details. They're just concerned with pleasing the investors. I also do wonder in some of these industries like the movies, like games, and like journalism to an extent too, there's a perception that, you know, and, and some of it is based on reality, that everybody wants to be in this business. It's a dream job and therefore we can employ them at poor, uh, you know, on the cheap and treat them poorly because if uh, you don't want to do this job I, there are 20 other people out there who want to be in video games or in the movies and that they have the upper hand on their employees therefore they don't need to treat them well yeah I, and at some point it is kind of at some point an employee does have to say to themselves is my am i getting adequately compensated for the skill set and experience i bring to this because you and i both know people who do very well for themselves in journalism precisely because they say no and they have the yeah. leverage and they have the leverage to say no because they're like no i write great copy and i have great sources and i know how to hit a deadline and i know what i'm talking about and so you know at some point workers have to decide how do i become that person or they have to decide do i want to be in this industry and do that uh, that said, to loop back around to this whole layoffs trend, it's, um, again, the Activision layoffs boggled because they let go of an awful lot of people just to appease investors. And that's going to hurt the company, both in the short term and the long term. You lose a lot. But people keep this stuff in their brains. They walk out the door. Those are corporate assets you don't get back. Um and there's also a human toll because you've got a demoralized workforce that's that's left and has to figure out now how to put out the same amount of work using substantially fewer people. Um, I'm reminded a whole lot of when the BuzzFeed layoffs, which were terribly executed, um, yeah, ha- happened like for the for like the week after they happened like the site was a hot mess and you had all these buzzfeeders on twitter just kind of reeling over what had happened to their workplace and um one of the things i thought to myself but first of all my heart goes out to everybody who did lose their job and for people who were left behind you and i have both survived layoffs like that and it's terrible it's it's terrible both for people who are leaving and for the people who are left behind there's there's it's it's not great for anyone but the other thing I thought was, if I'm a BuzzFeed investor, what I'm going to be worried about is how well Jonah Peretti's running that ship. Because this was not the first time BuzzFeed has had big, deep cuts. And the fact that they couldn't learn from the last two times that they did it poorly, and then executed this cluster across like five days, uh, and it, it garnered press coverage, and actually sparked unionizing like they my sense is these people probably wouldn't have unionized if the layoffs had been fast clean and with with vacation time but instead jonah's created a situation where it looks like he's not good management yeah well and reading the story about the buzzfeed layoffs or not the buzzfeed layoffs the blizzard layoffs um neither of which is netscape by the way i'm just uh, mixing up my b companies now um the uh that's the sense i got about uh, activision uh blizzard was 
this sounds like a really badly run company. Like not that, 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 because it's not just, what we're not saying is, oh, you should never lay people off. It makes people sad. It is true. It makes people sad. There, there are times when it's necessary, but reading the report about Blizzard, it's like, wow, they had, they had groups that were not doing anything that were poorly managed. They made cuts in kind of weird places. You're right, Lisa, that, um, you know, you question some of the institutional memory that walks out the door. There were a lot of people saying that the, that the cuts didn't really make sense. I have participated in layoffs on both sides of it. I, I, there's never a good layoff, but there are well-executed layoffs where they are made for good reasons, for for difficult but good reasons, and are done tastefully and carefully. And uh, there are also ones that are uh, flailing and confused and pointless. And and those are the ones done by companies that are confused and and flailing. And the Right, and it makes you say, "Well, wait a second. Why? Why did the, was this necessary? What is wrong with management that uh, it falls on the the you know it falls on the employees who lose their jobs and the ones who remain?" But the fact is that it, a lot of times uh, the layoffs are a, truly a management failure, and the Activision Blizzard layoffs feel like Especially, that at least based yeah. on the report I read. Yeah, well, yeah, because again, and I cannot stress this enough, the company is not doing badly. No, no, and, they have, and, they, and, they and, boast and, about their record results, and then and then they lay off a and huge they have amount a, of workers. It's amazing. And they have a product a lot of people want, and they're setting the terms for their industry. If they were a company that was reeling because, again, cost overruns or lack of profitability, or they didn't have a good bead on what was happening in their industry and they're behind trends or they've lost an audience, then yes, what you do is you take a look at everybody and all of your business units and you ask... What is holding us back as a company? What skill sets are no longer as valuable to us as they used to be? And you go from there. But that was not the case with these layoffs. While we're um, talking about about workers, I wanted to mention another story that um, that is a Bloomberg story called "What's it, What It's Like to Work Inside Apple's Black Site." And it's not a really great headline. There are lots of things about this article that I don't love because it does try at least a little bit to be that like, "Ooh, Apple is a weirdo, secretive company." The fact is. Um, this is a standard issue thing in Silicon Valley, which is you have uh, basically lots of things that you interpret on, uh, from the outside as being part of the core business of the company. Uh, but these incredibly huge, successful companies, very profitable, have decided that they don't want to be bothered hiring people as employees. They instead use an outside company to uh, be a basically contracting firm. And this is what this story is about, right down to the fact that you get a different colored badge and they uh, give you a pep talk and say, great, you're part of the Apple team. And then they say, don't go in the gym. That's only for employees. You don't count. And it is... I. I get why you might do some of this just in terms of trying to bring people up for projects and then back down and all that. But I am fascinated by the idea that a company with hundreds of billions of dollars in cash and one of the most you know revenue generating companies in the world um, has a huge part of its workforce that it can't deign to hire and give benefits to. Like it doesn't, it, it is, it is mind boggling to me that that's the case, but this is also standard procedure in Silicon Valley. It's baffling well, did, to me. Did you see the um, Bloomberg piece? I want to say it was about a week ago where f- first there were, to, to, to rewind even more, bloop, like about nine days ago, there was a Bloomberg piece where a memo from 2016 hit um, the Googlers and they found out that um, several of the higher ups were trying to figure out how to trim expenses. And one of the things they they noticed was in terms of giving bonuses to Google employees, managers get a pool of money, which they can then divvy up and hand out at their discretion. So bonuses aren't tied to a fiscal year. They're not tied to specific goals. Rather, a manager can be like, oh, you're really busted, butt, good job. And then boom, there's a pot of money deposited into your account. And HR noticed that they used to have that, that, you know, most managers have this money, but they're not particularly like they don't calendar it in with oh review and see who I give bonuses to. They were relying instead on pings from HR saying, hey, you've got this pool of money. Is it time to review and do bonuses? And so HR was like, you know, if we just stop reminding people that they can give bonuses, they'll stop giving them. And since the people who, and since the people who get bonuses don't know this is how it works, they're not going to notice. And HR also suggested you can also slow down the um, the promotions, uh, the promotion cycles, and the promotions calendar because again, most Googlers weren't aware of the time periods that that they're they're 
that their careers proceeded on. So if they slowed down, then you could slow, then you could extend the periods that you pay and not have to raise salaries at, at, at shorter intervals. You could, you could stretch out, you could basically stretch out the pain as it were. Um, so Googlers did not take well to this, understandably so. And then a few days later, Bloomberg was like, oh, also, it turns out that at one point, um, the CEO did talk with the rest of the execs about how about if we just stop making everybody employees and just empl- and just make everybody contractors, period. Like, it will save us so much money in the long run if we just have an army of contractors instead of workers. And I was like, I read that story and I realized that, you know, when you're brainstorming, you have a lot of crazy blue sky stuff that happens. And I thought, how Silicon Valley is it to 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 be like, oh, we shouldn't invest in people. <laughs> you know, we should just make everybody contractors and they'll love that they're contracting for us because employees don't care about perks at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought we've really reached like, I, I feel like we're kind of reaching an inflection point. Um, I do have a friend who works at Amazon who reached her two year anniversary this year. And she said, I got a new badge color. And people actually treat her differently. She's like, mm-hmm. you get a new, she's like, you get a new badge color so that people and, and she's like, there's a hierarchy based on the badge colors that go out. And I thought, that's kind of a jacked up culture too. when you're like, Oh, some people have red badges, and some people have blue badges, and some people have this badge. And another friend of mine was like, No, it's true. I went to Facebook, and they actually have it very clearly marked which badges can go where. And- <laughs> yeah. And I thought this is what it's come to between this and the layoffs. We've 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 basically trained an entire workforce to believe that they have to they have to to caper for corporate approval. <laughs> it's bananas right now. Stephen, how you feeling? I've never been happier to work behind my garage alone. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, Just gonna mm-hmm. leave that out yep. there. All right, that was a great conversation about some fascinating topics. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. Lisa Schmeiser, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find the stuff that you do? I'd start with twitter.com slash L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. It links to my day job at itprotoday.com, appearances I do on podcasts, other freelance work, and my upcoming appearance on tech TV. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you again. Now, I believe... We would move on to the Fuzzy Puppy update, but instead, Stephen has some breaking news for us, right? As rumored, this has been in the news a little bit, but Amazon is officially pulling out of the planned New York City HQ2. So remember this? Amazon pits cities against each other in a public battle, and, and then they chose the silliest option of splitting it between two very populated areas, New York City and right outside of Washington, D.C. And yeah. Basically, like uh, the people living in Long Island City basically just – I mean they have been protesting. They've been writing letters and uh, it has come that Amazon is not going to do this. People were worried about traffic congestion, you know, the crumbling infrastructure as far as like public transportation. They're going to have to displace people's uh, housing potentially. A lot of concerns that Amazon seemed to be willing to override until – until really recently when the opposition just became too fierce, both from the public and from like actual like local like government officials. So um, Amazon says they're not doing it. They also say that this isn't going to go anywhere else, but they are going to move forward with their plans for Northern Virginia. And they're also doing uh, a smaller thing in Nashville, just up the street from me. So, uh, so yeah, New York City 1, Amazon 0. Yeah, this is an interesting story because it also says something about how... I, I wonder if this HQ2 thing was also almost like a hedge for Amazon where they're like, well, we'll see what happens now. We'll just say there are two and we'll see how it goes. Uh, it turns out that if, the, if it wasn't, it was good that they did that. But um, I, I think it says something about politicians and about local politicians versus regional politicians. New York politics strikes me as being a very, very weird thing. But mm-hmm. this seems to be the case where politicians at the state level and maybe even at the citywide level, but especially I think the governor of New York, very excited about getting Amazon involved, uh, really want to be able to say, uh, I'm bringing more technology and more jobs to to our region. And then the people who live there are like, 
what are you talking about? You can't even, you know, the subways don't even run reliably. How are you, how are we going to do this? And this is going to ruin that neighborhood and all of these other things. And I think that's fascinating where you've got some assumptions about politicians at a a certain level about how this is going to be a winner for them and making deals with Amazon. And then a whole other group that's where this is going to go, who absolutely are against it. That's uh, what an interesting dynamic that is. And uh, I think unsurprisingly, also it's a really expensive place to, to put employees and, oh, and yeah. maybe Amazon was like, all right, forget it. Like it's not even worth it. Um, but that's, uh, it makes it harder if, the, if they don't welcome you and they don't want you and they're going to fight you every step of the way, it, it's going to be a brutal process. So I'm not surprised that Apple or Apple that Amazon has decided to walk away. It was a complexifier is what I'm saying, Stephen. It was a complexifier. <laughs> oh, no. All right, here is the uh, here is the fuzzy puppy update. This is a nice one. This is from Australia. Uh, in it's uh, the state of Victoria, Southwest Victoria, in Australia. There was a beagle named Molly, and she lost her litter of puppies at birth. But she, a few days later, got a new friend to support her. A baby possum jumped on the dog's back, and this is one of these Australian possums that's cute, and not one of these opossums from North America oh, that are they're horrifying nightmare fuel uh and uh, they're inseparable basically molly and the possum uh the possum kind of like holds on to her back um they are uh it looks like the possum was abandoned by uh her mother and of course the dog lost her babies and now they hang out together uh, an unlikely pair they say but they uh they really like each other and uh, the dog waits. Uh, there's some, you know, nocturnal versus diurnal issues here, but the dog will wait at the bottom of the tree where the possum is for the possum to come down and climb on her back and walk around. It is super cute. So uh, congratulations to Molly the Beagle for finding a good friend and uh, carrying it around on her back. Good possum friend. And that's the Fuzzy Puppy update. <sighs> I feel better already. Me too. Yeah, very good, very good. All right, well, that wraps up this episode of Download. We will be back next week. Samsung, yes, in the in the uh, center seat, I think, next time. We'll see what that foldable phone is all about. But until then, Stephen, thank you so much for being here, as always. And everybody else, thank you for being here, too. Uh, until next week, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Bye, everybody. Bye.